We continue our series, Life at the Lake, and we get to uh, delve into uh, Luke chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bibles with you or your um, device that you read your Bible on, you don't want to get that out. Uh, you're also going to have something probably to take notes today. Um, we are got lots of things to say. Um, hopefully they're things from God. Uh, I'll just get out of the way here and let him do some teaching. If you were here last week, uh, it was just a, a honor and a privilege to be a part of that moment um, where we just kind of had a living room setting, and it just felt like um, we were all all in this together and just kind of speaking to each other's hearts. And it was just, I, I had a blast with last week, and I hope this week is um, just as poignant to our hearts. Today we're talking about being uh, filled, that Jesus is filling. And each one of these weeks has, last week was Jesus is healing, and <clears throat> this week is Jesus is filling. And we kind of uh, continue with these thoughts and this idea. And life at the lake. What is Jesus teaching us at the Sea of Galilee? And so all summer long, we're going to be delving into uh, different aspects of what Jesus is teaching. And uh, I'm, I'm just excited about it. It's been really fun for me. I hope it's been fun for you uh, to kind of rediscover some of these Sunday school uh, stories. Today we're talking about feeding the 5,000, which I have heard and read and, uh, you know, the little boy, the fishes and loaves. And we've done that thousands and thousands of times if you grew up in church. And it kind of becomes just a, yep, he fed people. Next. Right, if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of get that way. Um, and in my reading of it this week, I was just kind of like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" And um, I was Monday. Jimmy called me, and I was telling him about uh, things I'd already been learning. And he's like, "Oh!" I was like, "Jimmy, it's only Monday. We got a bunch more days coming up. Before <laughs> who knows what I'm going to be talking about on Sunday?" So um, it's, it's real fun to start uh, thinking about that and and working through that. So uh, Luke chapter nine. Hopefully you're there. Uh, let me set the stage for it. <clears throat> this is also found in Mark chapter 6, and I believe Matthew 14. Um, kind of different retellings of this, the same story in different points of view. But it's really important to know in Luke 9 what has just happened. What has just taken place in, in the periphery of, of the Sea of Galilee. John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, who is the, basically the herald announcing the coming of Jesus. And some of these disciples, scholars think, were actually uh, disciples of John the Baptist before they moved on to Jesus. So you kind of have these two uh, rock stars of rabbis going around on the Sea of Galilee. John the Baptist stays out in the desert a little bit more because um, he does come fun stuff by eating locusts and dressing with camel hair. He was an interesting guy. Uh, so anyway, what has just happened, but they all know John the Baptist. Everyone that follows Jesus's, Jesus's ministry knows John the Baptist. They know what he's about. They know uh, going on. They know their cousins. They know each other. And John the Baptist has just been killed. He's not just only been killed, but he has had his head removed from his body. Served on a platter at a party. And this sends shockwaves throughout the Sea of Galilee, throughout this area. As you imagine someone that you followed, basically like a pastor that you used to go to church with, you find out that the government had cut his head off. That would change your attitude 
church would feel a little different for a moment there, wouldn't it? And so this is what's happened. John the Baptist has lost his head. Some of these disciples had followed him. Probably everyone had, everyone had been around him. Everyone had watched him speak. They knew him. And they knew that he was killed because he was preaching basically the same thing that Jesus is preaching. Repent. Be baptized. You guys are messing up. We can do this better. And this is why he is killed. And so the thought process immediately goes, if they're going to kill him, why are they not going to kill me? And so faith and following Jesus just got real. And we meet the disciples at an empty place. Because if you've ever had a death of someone who's had a huge impact on your life, you know it's just this draining feeling, this feeling of, I thought, you know, even the feeling of, Jesus, I thought you were going to protect us. Why are you, if, he's not going to protect his own cousin, his own blood. Why would he not protect, how is he going to protect me? That has, to, that has to somewhere go in your thought process, does it not? And so Jesus, in, in one of the greatest leadership moves of his ministry, uh, this is all new to me. I was like, what? I never thought of this, because if you read all of chapter 9, you see beauty. We usually just see, oh, loaves and fishes, Jesus fed 5,000. That's fun. You know, Jesus loves the little children. Amen. But this is a huge leadership move, because in the first, basically the first couple of verses of Luke 9, Jesus gives the power and the authority to the disciples to go out, cast out demons, and to heal people. So this news has just come in. John the Baptist is dead. And Jesus has the choice. Am I going to go run and hide? Am I going to take these guys and say, all right, all right, let's go you know, hang out in a cave somewhere and chill and wait until for this all to blow over? Instead, he multiplies the effectiveness. Before this time, Jesus is basically the, the sole purveyor of the miracles. And so now John the Baptist is dead, and Jesus does this thing. Oh, you think you hurt my ministry. I'm going to send out the apostles. So what you have is you have this, the severing of John's life, and then immediately you have 12 more people out in the exact area healing and casting out demons. What do you think Herod's thinking? Think, oh, mm. Right? This, is, this did not go as planned. This is, not, this is not what I was thinking would happen. So Jesus, he says, no, 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 I'm just going to turn up the heat. I'm going to give these guys authority because they're empty, because they are, you can, you can sense the desperation in them. If you read the other accounts, when they hear about John being, being killed, they're, oh, they're just devastated. And so Jesus sees into their hearts and says, I'm going to fill you with this authority to heal and to cast out demons and do all kinds of amazing things. In the next chapter, he sends out 72. So Jesus is just kind of cranking up the heat here. So he, he sends out the guys and he says, you know what? You're going to go out. I don't want you to take any clothes. Don't take any food. Don't take any money. Just go out with the authority. And this is interesting to me. Because anytime I think I need to go, and it's the whole idea of you know, going to be a pastor or going to do whatever we're going to do, uh, we have to go through our classes. We have to get our training. We have to t- have all the right books. We have to have all the right um, tools. It's basically like Jesus says, hey, go build a house, but leave your hammer here. Right? So he says, no, 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 leave everything here and just go. 
And so what he's telling them to do is, I don't want you to trust in yourself at all. I don't want you to trust in the things that you can take with you. I don't want you to trust in your clothes or your demeanor or anything like that. All I want you to trust in is the authority that I'm sending you out in. Luke chapter 9 Verse 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. I haven't, like, figured out why that one's in there. Like, I can understand it, but the shirt one, okay. He wants them smelly, whatever. It's Jesus, he can do what he wants. So I thought this was really interesting as I thought about this and, and prayed about it this week, that Jesus' big idea in changing the world is to be empty. Before we can be effective, we have to be empty. That maybe even this idea of where the guys are broken and some of their false pretenses of how they're going to be treated by being Jesus' disciples are stripped away. They know Jesus is coming back with this big idea of you've got to have nothing before you can be effective. You can't rely on yourself anymore. You can't rely on who you know anymore. You've got to rely on the power that I give you. That's his big idea. Scholars call it the upside-down kingdom. And all throughout Luke, it's Jesus doing this stuff that makes absolutely no sense. That the least of these are the most important, and the most important are last. It is, it is a total reversal of how world should work. Think about it. This is in the era of kings and emperors. And you're telling me the poor people are the ones that are most important? Same for us today. You're, you're telling me that not the, the politicians or the millionaires are the important people? No, no, no. It's us? The big idea in changing the world is to be empty. So if you find yourself today feeling empty, that can be a good thing. It can mean that you're just on the cusp of doing exactly what God is calling you to do. You're, you're finally maybe in a mental state, in a spiritual and an emotional state in which you can be used by God in ways that you never dreamed possible. Luke 9 10 through 17. When the apostles turned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. And he, uh, wait, I'm missing a verse, I think. Apologize. Yeah. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and they can go in the countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. Now, I'd never listened to that before. I'd never seen that before. I'd never heard that before. I've read this story, heard it a billion times. You go give him something to eat. What is Jesus saying here? You, I gave you the authority to cast out demons. You can't feed somebody. 
on my hierarchy of like needs, like that's that's pretty high. You have you could you were healing people of leprosy and of junk and like walking now, and you heal them, and they had totally lost it. They had totally missed that whole idea. They totally gone. Oh oh oh, we got him back in your presence, Jesus. We're just gonna let you do your your thing now. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't, you know, we'll just wait on you to do it. They came, it's just so, it was so interesting to me that they came back and said, said, oh, 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 okay. And I missed it. I missed this over and over and over again. But I think this has huge implications for who we are, who we are as Christians, that God has given us the Holy Spirit to go out and to actually do things. And we go, oh, I'm just going to wait on the Lord. What if his reaction is, you go feed him? You keep on saying, Jesus, do this, Jesus, do this. I gave you the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, kind of a big deal. But I find myself sitting in my own prayer places. Jesus, do this, Jesus, do this, Jesus, do this. Please, Jesus, I need you here. And what if he's saying to me, and I just don't want to listen to it. You do it. I still get the glory. If you stay empty, I still get the glory. No sweat off my nose. I want you to do it. What if we're missing out on the great things that God has called us to do? Do you know what the impact in that area would have been if those disciples, if Andrew would have been like, hey, give me those loaves of fishes. Break them up and start passing them out. Because think about it. Herod's idea was to destroy this whole faith, this whole idea of John and Jesus and what this coming of Messiah was about. That was his whole thing is to go kill John the Baptist and this is going to happen. Well, 12 guys go out and multiply. Well, now Jesus has this opportunity, this divine moment where they could have, what are you telling me? That now 13 of them, including Jesus, are feeding people, healing people and casting out demons? Yeah, that's what we're saying. I had two, and now I have, oh, it's a bad day. What the ramifications for that would have been and what the story could have been. Now, Jesus cares, and he still loves these people. There's 5,000 men there, which probably means there's close to 10, 15,000 people actually there. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a huge amount. And Jesus still has compassion on them. But he set the disciples up to participate in this amazing, beautiful miracle. He says, okay, let's do this. And so he starts making food. This is a huge miracle because it does a few things. It fills actual stomachs. So often we pray for a miracle and we just keep Jesus back to say, oh, well, I just need emotional healing or I just need you know, this that no one will ever see done. And we kind of cop it out. We're like, oh, well, Jesus, you know, God only took care of this part of it. No, no, Jesus is actually filling the actual need that's going on. He is filling actual stomachs. This is not phantom fish that they are putting in their mouth. This is not, you know, uh, gluten-free bread. This is actual bread that they're eating and getting sustained from. He fills actual stomachs. It does another thing. It calms the disciples. After you see 15,000 people get filled and eat and eat as much as they possibly can, I think I'd be calmed down a little. Okay, he's still in charge. I'm good with this. Right? I think that would have a calming effect on my nerves. Still would be a little scared. 
But that's what's going on. The third thing is it shows what is possible. Could you imagine being there? The hillside is full of people. I'm just full. 15,000 people is a lot of people. 5,000 is a lot of people. I don't even have to. And all of a sudden, these people have, are all eating together and breaking bread together. And what do you think the conversation around the fish and the loaves is? This is awesome. <laughs> Did you see that? And they're, and they're there and they're partic- participating in it. And it shows what is possible. I don't think that any of the disciples to the day they died would have forgotten this moment. You remember when we were at our lowest? You remember when Jesus filled everyone? Verse uh, 13. They answered, we only have five uh, loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all the crowd, uh, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And the disciples did so. And everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So not only is he feeding 15,000 people, 12,000, a lot of people. Let's just go with what's in the scripture, 5,000. I mean, I mean, you don't have to explode, explode that. It's a ridiculous amount. He's got food left over, which is simply enough to say Jesus is more than enough for when we are empty. He has more than enough blessing. He has more than enough uh, everything to emotionally, to physically, to spiritually fill us up to an overflowing state. We cannot get there unless we are empty. What about the guys that came to that thing? They couldn't have gotten fed. They wouldn't have been able to participate in that miracle if they would have been like, oh, I just had a good pot roast. Right? I'll pass. Right? I don't, I, I don't want to do the... I don't want to take place. I don't like fish and miracle fish. I'm a little testy of, you know, it smells kind of funny. You see what I'm saying? But because they were in a place of emptiness, they get to participate in one of the coolest things ever to happen. When we find ourselves in a place of emptiness, so often we turn so inward that we can't receive and we can't see and we can't participate in the miracles around us. Verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were there, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, the one the prophets lived long ago has come back to life. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now there's a play on words here, that Jesus is using this I am. Now, when Moses speaks into um, the burning bush and says, "Um, who are you? What's going on here? The bush, God, responds, I am who I am. And so whenever Jesus uses the word I am, he's he's always poking at that bush. He's always poking at the word Yahweh. He's always kind of saying, remember? Remember? That's me. And so he asked the questions, who do they say that I am? He's also speaking back into the John the Baptist. He's also speaking back into their emptiness. He's also speaking back into their need. Because he's like, who do they say I am? Who? 
And they're like, well, some of them say this. and some. Now, who do you say that I am? Because if I am truly the God's Messiah, why are you worried about losing heads? Why are you worried about Roman persecution? Because if I am the I am, none of that matters. And so this is, for the first time I looked at this, I saw this almost as a pep talk. This is like the locker room halftime pep talk. Because after this, things get real crazy. Okay, from here on, if you read the rest of Luke, it's, it's going to go get real intense real fast. So he's cementing them. He is taking them aside into a quiet place and saying, who do you say that I am? And it's a question that when we are empty, we have to ask ourselves. Who do you say he is? Is this just a hobby? Is this just a thing we do? Is this just a club? Is, this, is he really God still when we're empty? Is he still God when things are going well? Who is he? Because how we answer that question dictates a lot for wherever we find ourselves. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, okay, guys, I've taken you out of this emptiness state. I've taken you out of this hard place that you've been in. But let me tell you, it doesn't get easier. That every day you have to say, pick up your cross, be emptied again, set yourself out by putting all of your, your own stuff down to pick up your cross and follow after him. To put away our stuff, to put away ourselves, to quit relying on ourselves is a scary proposition. And I think we have to get to a point where we're more scared of not having God in our lives than we are of not, having, not relying on ourselves. And that, that's a point where I think we're taught to be self-reliant. We all want to be MacGyver even if we don't even know what a screwdriver does. We all want to be able to do it all. We all want to be able to handle any situation. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you quit trying to do that and rely on me, that's when we can actually do some things around here. And unless you do that, you're never going to really participate in the kingdom of God. That's a tall order. That is a huge ask. If you really think that I am God's Messiah, what that entails is putting your stuff away and stepping into me. What does that look like? You have to empty pride. You have to empty comfort. And you have to empty ambition. Those are hard things. And I think our culture tells us those are the very things we're supposed to be striving for. We're supposed to be, you know, having pride in what we do. And we're supposed to seek comfort for our families and we're supposed to have ambition. And I'm not telling you not to work hard, 
But I'm saying when you have this attitude of I got to get mine, I've got to take what's mine, I got to hustle, I got to hustle, I got to hustle, that is counter to kingdom thought. You work hard for the glory of God. You do not work hard for the glory of yourself. See, sometimes we feel empty because we're not using what God has already given us. And this goes back to what I earlier said. He has given them the power already. He's like, you feed them. And I feel like sometimes God is saying that to me, and I bet he's saying it to you. You do it. I don't want to miss out on the divine opportunities that God has for me because I sit and wait for him to do something. And he's going, I already equipped you to do that. It's the whole idea of the Holy Spirit. If we want to participate in what he has for us, we have to trust that the Holy Spirit is with us and is in us and wants the best for us. It's much easier for us to wait on God than to do what God has already equipped us to do. It is much easier for us to wait on God than to do what God has already equipped us to do. Isn't it? Is it not? It's way easier for us just to be like, okay. And I find myself in that place. I bet you find yourself there as well. Because when, and think of the disciples. If they continue to push it all onto Jesus, well, Jesus is the one going to lose his head. I, I was just a lowly peon. But you start feeding people, you start healing people, you start casting out demons, you're going to get some attention too. It's much easier for us just to put it all on God and, and not do what he has equipped us and called us to do. And I, I want to step into what he has called and equipped us to do. And that, when you are doing what God has equipped and called you to do, is where you find fulfillment and where you are filled. Jesus fills these people with overarching abundance for several reasons. To show them that their needs are met. To show them that the death of John the Baptist is not going to stop them. To show them the disciples, show the disciples that he can do more than enough. More than what is needed. Today, maybe you find yourself emptied. It's so that you can be filled. Maybe you need food. Maybe you need spiritual food. Maybe you need actual food. We have food in the kitchen for you. Maybe you know people who need that. They need their actual stomach filled. We have an overabundance of wonderful stuff to give for that. We can do that need, as Jesus did. Maybe you need peace. Maybe you're... You need to be emptied so you can have peace. Maybe you need to put down old wounds and old pain and old stuff and empty it all out so you can have peace. Maybe you find your, 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 yourself in a spot where you need hope. And you've been trying on your own and you've been trying on your own and it feels like you keep on running into brick walls and doors shut in your face. Maybe you need to empty yourself and you can receive the hope of Christ in that. I wonder if we keep on calling out to Jesus to do things for us, 
that we've had the power to do for a long time. For those of us who are fresh in the faith or don't have a faith and are asking questions, have you noticed that maybe your pursuits are empty? They leave you wanting more. They leave you desiring more. If you're not emptying your own pride and your own ambition and following after God, they always will feel empty. They always will not satisfy. Jesus gives more than enough. I have to ask the question, I think, to all of us that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? The world says Jesus is this and TV says this and CNN says that and Fox News says this. The scientists say that. But who do you say that he is? That's a question that we have to wrestle with because in our emptiness, in our points of need, the way in which we answer that question dictates everything else. It changes how we are filled. It changes what we fill ourselves with. Today can be a day in which we step into being filled with God instead of trying to fill it in with all kinds of other junk. I want today to be a day in which I say, God, I I want you to use me, and instead of me just waiting on you to do everything, will you just prompt me in the ways in which I can be used? That's a huge shift for me. I think it's a huge shift for you. But who do you say he is? Because if he really is God's Messiah, everything must change. We're going to take communion today. We're going to participate in God's brokenness for us. As his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. We're going to participate in that because I can't think of a better symbol of being filled by God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's purpose than actually physically taking communion today. It was such a wonderful timing of of events that God said, no, no, Jared, you're not going to do it this way and that way. Because we always do it on the first Sunday of the month. We didn't do it last week. Oh, you had a plan, God. Look at there. But as we take these elements, as we participate in this, I want to thank God. God, can you fill me in my emptiness? Maybe I've been really struggling with with, with self-esteem or been really struggling with, with what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm really struggling with my marriage. I'm really struggling with this or that or whatever it is. God, will you meet me in the emptiness of my wounds and fill me with you? Because I try to fill myself with, with all kinds of horrible stuff that's never going to be good enough. God, will you fill me with you? Let that be our prayer today as we take communion. We're going to do communion a little differently today. Um, if you would if you guys would move over into this aisle and kind of, and then return back that way. I know that requires you guys to take a little bit longer of a route. Uh, feel free to cut through the rows if you can. Um, but just so we can not get in a traffic jam, uh, that would be fabulous. So let's make a little circle. Band, come on forward. We're going to play a, <clears throat> a song. As you meditate, feel free to sing along or to take communion at your, your own pleasure uh, throughout that But this cup and this bread represents so much that God will stop at nothing to have relationship with us, that God will stop at nothing to fill us up with his love and with his power. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for these symbols. 
Lord, we ask you to bless us and guide us in, in how we live our lives and that we, maybe for the first time today, can step into what you have for us. God, if we have blinders on where we're, we're always, it feels like we're always waiting for somebody else to do something, God, would you take those blinds away? God, some of us today come so empty. And we came out of here out of a sense of desperation. We're like the people hungry for you, God. And God, I ask you to, to meet us in that need and meet us in that, that, to fill our stomachs, fill us spiritually. Some of us feel lost, and some of us, just like those disciples, when they found out that John the Baptist was dead, they, they feel lost. They feel empty. God, we, we ask you to fill us again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.